This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Noticing. Learn the basics of music in a fun and musical way by singing. Created together with the Royal College of Music in Stockholm, Noticing guides students through lessons in pitch and rhythm. On the way, they discover concepts like note names, scales, and music notation in an interactive and gamified system, while teachers track progress all the way through to grading. Noticing is celebrated by the EdTech Awards as a Cool Tool finalist of 2021 and has a 4.5-star rating in the Educational App Store. You can find Noticing at edcuration.com and get half price off the first year using the code EDCURATION at checkout. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. I've had at least 15 students who have increased more than four grade levels. He used theater as a tool to make great human beings. My expectations are high for all of them. One of the things that I really love about teaching is the fact that every day is sort of unique and different and strange. Hi everyone, this is your host Christy Hemingway and our guest today, Janice Lintz, is the go-to consultant for hearing access, advocacy, and the related political spectrum, not only in the United States, but globally. She authored the article, 10 Misconceptions Teachers Should Know About Children Who Are Hard of Hearing. Prior to becoming an advocate and activist for individuals with hearing loss, Janice worked in an advertising agency and then became a lawyer, experiences which have certainly supported and informed her current work as the CEO and founder of Hearing Access and Innovations, which is the leading company dedicated to helping the world's education, business, cultural, and entertainment institutions, as well as government agencies and mass transit organizations, improve accessibility for people with hearing loss. I was curious, first of all, to know how she got started in this work and why is she so passionate about it? Sometimes life happens and it's all how you react to it. So I have a daughter who's hard of hearing. And when she was diagnosed with hearing loss, the doctor immediately told me there were special schools for her. And I hadn't even wrapped my head around the diagnosis and already the bar for her entire life was lowered. And I didn't understand why the bar was lowered. And I decided it was easier to change the world than to change my standards. And so I set upon changing access and, and whatever we needed. Janice's daughter did, in fact, eventually attend two very special schools. They were not the kind of special that the doctor was recommending, but rather prestigious Ivy League schools. But Janice's insistence on full access for her daughter didn't stop at school. Once I situated her with her hearing aids and got her settled in schools, I started, you know, we live in New York City. It's a cultural capital. How can you not partake in culture? And so it was easier for me to fix things than for us to cease doing what I loved. I just couldn't give it up. Once she'd conquered New York City, Janice kept going. She's a passionate traveler, having visited 194 countries, territories, and unrecognized nations. As I traveled, I, I tracked global best practices and I fixed things as I travel. And I'm just not a person that just accepts the status quo. 
Janice recounted many bureaucratic obstacles that she tackled on behalf of her daughter and other individuals with hearing loss, emphasizing the importance of becoming well-informed and being your own or your child's advocate in an overburdened system. They said it would take three months to get hearing aids. And every day is critical for your child to have hearing aids because they're losing language. They're losing so language. I was like, great. And so like this nonprofit wanted me to purchase the hearing aids. And I was like, no, I'm entitled to the free hearing aids. Why am I purchasing them? They're like $6,000. And so I literally called each person, picked like wherever the paper started. I called, did you get that paper? Yes. Great. Did you review it? It's at the pile. I'm sorry. Let's get to the top of the pile. Yeah. And like, and where are you bringing it to? Okay. Now give me their contact. Okay. Did you get the paper? And I moved it and got it moved very quickly. Mm-hmm. It is exhausting to it's do exhausting. this, by the way. And you have to have these conversations that are basically, listen, I'm going to have to insist that you actually do your job today. One of the things I did to make them care is when I had had papers, I always attached my daughter's photo to that. Oh, that's good. I wanted them to remember this was a real kid and not just a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And by seeing her smiling face, it humanized the process. Mm-hmm. Janice, that's a fabulous tip for anyone listening, I think, who's trying to deal with this kind of bureaucracy. So, well, so talk about what you, what are some of the organizations that you worked with and what you were able to accomplish with those organizations? What have some of them done to increase access as a result of your collaboration with them? Well, some of them from, you know, government agencies like the National Park Service, we um, helped to rewrite the guidelines for effective communication for the national parks. Um, And that was after my frustration of trying to visit parks on school trips. Um, My daughter was going to Ellis Island and we would go on parks as we traveled around the United States. And I remember particularly going to Gettysburg and this was pre-renovation and they had this giant map with lights on it. And there was an audio system, no one live, so there was no lips to, for my daughter to read. And as they would, the, the tape would mention a location, a little light would bur- light up on the map of where that battle took place. But my daughter couldn't hear it. Frankly, neither could I. Um, and so I said, where's the assistive listening system? And they said, oh, it broke six months ago. And so I quickly learned in these federal um, parks or agencies that if you filed, this is so long ago, I was on my BlackBerry. I would pull out of the parking lot as my ex-husband was driving, and I was typing a, something called a 504 complaint on my BlackBerry and typing it out and sending it as we left. And I would put in the subject line 504 complaint because what happens when you have a complaint about um, effective communication and you put 504 on the subject line, a federally mandated timeline kicks in. And so rather than your complaint going to the bottom of the pile, my complaint now rose to the top of the pile because now I had a federally mandated timeline of when they had it to react. And also in, by filing each complaint individually, I had stacks of complaints. We were going to a lot of parks on this trip. And so I filed all these complaints and there was a lot of them. So suddenly, as a result of all these complaints, I was asked to testify in um, before the National Park um, Subcommittee. I had meetings at Harpers Ferry in Virginia, West Virginia, to 
fixed access. I had meetings at Ellis Island. I gave presentations. I spoke to vi- uh, lots of people in the national parks. Mm-hmm. So as a result, we wrote guidelines. So that was one of, and, and, and the National Park Service acknowledged my contribution in the, in the guidelines. Mm-hmm. Another one is the FDA, and this is the most recent, the new proposed over-the-counter hearing aid regulations cite my previous FDA testimony. And I was the only consumer who was unpaid by anyone who testified at the before the FDA. So I worked on those. I've worked with NBC and then the FCC to develop captioning standards. I worked with Delta to add induction loops to airports and then Virgin and Delta to um, add captions to in-flight entertainment. So now when you fly and you see captions on the movies, that's from me um, because I couldn't hear myself on the airplane over the noise and my nor could my daughter, right? Who can? And so what ends up happening is you turn up the volume, yeah. If, especially if you don't have noise canceling headsets. So you turn up the volume to compensate for the engine noise and you're putting more sound against your eardrum, damaging your eardrum over prolonged use. When you have captions, if you miss a word, you can look at the captions. Are all airlines doing that now or just a a few? It's required for all flights emanating and departing the United States. So you have established your own company. Yes, Hearing Access and Innovations. Hearing access and innovations. Okay. And you work with organizations of all kinds, obviously. You've mentioned many of them. But for our listeners who are primarily K through 12 or pre K through 12 educators, um, what are the practices and technologies that they specifically should know about to increase access for deaf and hearing impaired? One is understanding that hearing loss is a spectrum. So you people always think when there's hearing loss, they think of deaf and sign language. Mm-hmm. So of the 48 million people with hearing loss, less than 2 million use sign language. So the vast majority don't. And what they need is, so for example, in classrooms, all videos or all movies should be captioned automatically. Nothing should be shown without a caption. First of all, if it benefits a million people, especially if they're unusual words, um, it helps reinforce spelling. Kids who read captions, um, there are studies done where they're better readers, right? Just a quick side note that making sure all video and media is captioned is also part of creating a text-rich environment and is considered best practice for English learners and struggling readers. Then there's assistive technology, making sure that um, induction loops, which allow the sound directly into a person's hearing aid or cochlear implant, can be added to classrooms. They can be added to auditoriums, you know, for for school performances. That should be part of the norm. Not shouting. Um, Many times people think if you say it louder, you'll hear. And what it does is it distorts the sound. Hmm. When teachers write, they shouldn't be, if they're writing on a blackboard, they shouldn't turn their back. They should be facing the class when they're speaking. So write what you need to on the blackboard, and turn around. Face people um, during now, during with masks, it's really so hard. Wear a clear, clear mask. And then I have one tip that I, I just love that a friend recommends. She puts wears red lipstick because it makes the lips more obvious in the clear mask. My daughter's school has asked all the students to wear a clear mask, and they actually provided the clear mask to the to the students. I think that's marvelous. It's such an easy fix. So it's just making me wonder, the ADA passed 
the Americans with Disability Act was passed 30 years ago. And so I'm curious why all of these solutions aren't already firmly in place, but especially in schools of all places, it seems like these should be pretty firmly and consistently practiced in all schools. Why? What is the delay? Yeah, that is a great question because I've wondered this all the time. Part of the problem is the ADA is a federally unfunded mandate with no teeth. So there's no funds to implement it. The, there's nobody going around like in many cities where you have like restaurants rated. There's nobody rating and there's nobody issuing tickets, you know, the same way the health department does. So you eliminate, there's no oversight. <laughs> so that's problematic. Then you have, you know, some school districts are afraid to become too good. You see this with, quote, autism, where certain schools will become magnets and they feel like their funds are depleted. So they don't want to become so good because they don't want people moving into the district and requesting these services. So that's problematic. When you have a system where people are afraid of being too successful for fear of getting overwhelmed. Yes, that's ridiculous. And it's then- beyond ridiculous. The next problem you have is you have, when you look at access coordinators around the country, mm-hmm. the vast majority of them use wheelchairs, visually impaired, and or deaf. Because people hire people in charge of access um, where you could see the disability. Because so they could almost point and say, see, hey, we have somebody here who has a disability. And hearing aids aren't. So what you have is people making decisions about hearing loss that don't have the disability, don't have the knowledge base of the disability. And it you know, so imagine somebody with a, using a wheelchair making a decision about somebody who is hard of hearing. What makes somebody who uses a wheelchair an expert in hard of hearing, right? And then even if let's say they do have a hearing aid. The perception is when you put those hearing aids in your ear, you're now an expert. I have a cell phone. I am not an expert in my cell phone. So just because somebody wears a hearing aid, that hearing aid doesn't impute the knowledge base into their brain, right? You actually have to study and learn. But the perception is, and I hear this all the time, oh, well, we asked Joe who wears hearing aids. Like Joe's on our board and they, he has hearing aids, so he must know. Well, actually not. And it also makes a big difference if Joe got his hearing loss later in life or when he's younger. Because once, if you're later in life, deaf, late deafened, you already were able to obtain your education. You didn't face the challenges of somebody like a student. Plus, technology has so dramatically changed that even if you yeah. were early deafened or right, and you do, you, your learning experience is vastly different than that child's who is dealing with all this technology in school and what is compatible and how to com- make it compatible. So they need to bring in experts and they're not bringing in experts. And so it's become this like, nobody really knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And the child's not benefiting. Parents are over who have a child with hearing loss. Many times it's, um, this is their first entree into disabilities. They have no idea. They're completely overwhelmed. Because they're doing all the therapies, right, while trying to hold down a job, while going to medical appointments, and they have have other kids. And there's only so much time in the day. And so there's almost like a point where they kind of give up. Then they rely on these experts who may not give great advice. The second that child is diagnosed, get in. 
And then if you have these delays, right, three months to get the hearing aids, then three months to go through the evaluation of everything else. And suddenly, even if you, even if your child is, is diagnosed day one, right? If it takes three months to get a hearing aid, three months for an IEP, you're at six months. You just lost six critical months where that child's brain is plastic and easily molded. The first thing that you mentioned was funding and how this is not, not only is there not oversight, there's not federal funding. So where are schools getting funding for the additional technology and training required to be successful? It's coming out of their budget and they're like stealing, you know, from one budget to the other and trying to figure out where to move that money around. And that's why they're trying, that's why the IEPs become sometimes like a battleground with the parents Mm -hmm. and the parents start bringing the lawyers, right? And it becomes this rather than working as a team. Don't have designated funds for. They do, but they move the funds as they need, right? And, And it's who gets those funds. So there's no federal funding and I'm guessing no state funding. So it's, it's district by district and school by school. It varies in different locations. You know, I, um, I can't say for an entire country, but for the most part, it's by district by district. I'm wondering, listening to you talk, if there are some models of success somewhere that we can learn from. As I haven't seen it. Schools. You haven't seen I, it? I haven't seen it. I think oh. there is an antiquated way for um, children with hearing loss of how to educate them. And okay. this was something I was working on during the uh, Obama administration. I had reached out to Secretary Duncan about this. You know, you have these, these titles of, of people in the system called teachers for the deaf. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why it's called deaf because you're, my child's not deaf, but suddenly it's, it's labeled teacher for the deaf. Mm-hmm. And what did this person do? And the person we had um, at our school came in and told the private school headmistress that my daughter could not learn French. It would be too hard since she's hard of hearing. And my daughter really wanted to learn French. And my, my daughter said to the headmistress, what do kids in France do who have hearing loss? I was a little kid, right? And my daughter is super smart. And, and <laughs> the headmistress looked at her and said, you're right. And so we came to an agreement with the school that we would augment with a French tutor. And I think there in the system, we have these antiquated ways that hearken to God knows what era that have no connection. And and, and educating kids with hearing loss should be based on skills, skill acquisition. If you want to learn to write, then get a writing teacher. If you want to learn to listen, play music, right? Whatever the skill acquisition is, it should be based on that rather than this umbrella teacher for the deaf. Disabilities aren't the only obstacles to making sure that all students have access to quality instruction in every content area. A lack of budget, staffing, and resources can also contribute. If you're looking for a way to ensure that all students develop musical literacy and have the chance to develop artistically, then Noticing's app-based instruction is just what you need. Hi, this is Johan Ronström. I'm a musician and the product owner of Noticing, Interactive Lessons in Music. We're happy to sponsor this episode of the Education Podcast. With 30 years of research at the Royal College of Music in Stockholm, we have built the app Noticing. Noticing lets your students explore music concepts by singing. 
getting feedback on their level. Learning the building blocks of music in this fun and interactive way broadens the music literacy of your students, helping them learn and becoming confident in their music abilities. Check out noticing at edcuration.com. My guess is that there are probably a lot of students who who go unflagged or undiagnosed by both their teachers and their parents. What are what are the things that teachers and parents should be on the lookout for that will indicate a child with hearing loss? So my child, you know, was diagnosed younger, but one of the things is um, an inattention, like not paying attention Mm -hmm. when, you know, kind of zoning out, it's likely the child is not listening. Mm -hmm. Um, If you feel like the child is glued to the lips of people, you can feel it almost. Um, if you see a child always standing to the front of a class or always positioning themselves to the front, that is an indication as well. So for example, I have a learning disability and I grew up not knowing I had a learning disability, but, you know, and things were not diagnosed back then, but all those years I thought I was stupid because I couldn't memorize anything. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of students who go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed, just have these assumptions about their intelligence, which are erroneous. Completely. And I mean, now I'm going to Harvard in July to enter a graduate program. And so it's kind of funny. I mean, for me, it's like full circle. But for kids with hearing loss, you could start to see those kids who are, they just look like they're zoning out. I mean, when I would say words to my daughter, um, I remember being with a friend and she would say words to her daughter and her daughter would repeat it. My daughter didn't. Okay. And I could see she was alert in the, you know, you could tell when a child's alert by their eyes, but she wouldn't repeat the words. Her, her learning language was very slow to come. Mm-hmm. And I was writing down every single word to see what words and to prove to the doctor she actually was really had a limit of vocabulary because I didn't think the doctor was taking them seriously. A teacher or parent can come to a number of different conclusions about a student who is zoning out in class. So careful documentation and pushing through to an accurate diagnosis is obviously the first step in supporting a student with hearing loss. I asked Janice to elaborate on the misconceptions that might hender proper support. One, a child who responds to sound does not have a hearing loss. Um, Children have different degrees of hearing loss. So they may respond to sound um, and it may have nothing and it, they just may not be hearing everything. Um, Hearing aids and cochlear implants restore hearing to normal. That's not accurate. There is a variation. It's not the same as wearing glasses. So Um, what are the limitations, if you wouldn't mind dwelling on that for just a second, of hearing aids and cochlear implants? Because I think that a lot of people think, well, yeah, look, cochlear implant, which means that you have normal hearing, just like all the other kids in my class. It's not, it varies. And especially um, with cochlear implants, it changes the sound hearing aids. It varies depending on the hearing loss. Some kids hear better or not. And that's part of the other thing that sometimes people assume if you're wearing a hearing aid, you hear everything and that the student will notify the teacher if they don't, and they won't necessarily. Because when you have a child with a disability, they just want to blend. 
the more obvious their disability, the, you know, they already feel like they're standing out. They don't want to, they want to be just like their peers Mm -hmm. and they don't want something that's going to attract attention and, and, and be like that person who's constantly asking for people, um, to restate something. It's interesting to me, Janice, because those kinds of things can actually support and enhance the learning for all the kids in the classroom. As you were saying, all the kids, all yeah. the kids. And in fact, kids in my daughter's class at grad school now love the captions because especially, you know, in she's now in graduate school. So they're learning technical terms mm-hmm. and those new, those words are not familiar. And, and so like it, it benefits everybody. I mean, think about how many times you, you watch television and you miss a, a word that they said. When the when you're watching with the captions on, you can automatically fill in that missing word. Mm-hmm. Captions benefit, and I think there was a an issue with the older generation who viewed it as a negative. The younger generation, who's operating on multiple platforms at any given second, um, likes captions. Those of us in our third trimester of life, we we're, <sighs> we're starting to need those anyway. I love that. I'm I like that third trimester of life. That's great. Um, so do you have any advice as far, because at, at Curation we're a curriculum marketplace, and I'm wondering if there's certain types of curriculum or resources that encourage inclusivity or for the hearing impaired or in, in terms of other disabilities or learning challenges, what would be the criteria or the rubric for those kinds of resources? I think not having, um, test taking as one way. So for example, having, you know, if somebody having options or even the teaching style options, realizing there are multiple ways to learn. Um, And the same for how to take notes or how to, you know, I I was once in a class where the person said, I don't want anybody taking notes because I want you to pay attention. Well, it turns out, right. She had dyslexia, so for her, taking notes was problematic, right? And that was her perception. But for somebody like myself with a learning disability, not taking notes is a nightmare. Success will happen more frequently when different ways are handled. So there are options so that more kids can succeed. And that's part of even the problem with the SAT. I mean, the SAT has this whole thing where you have it memorized, and depending on how you grew up, whether you had access to this information. Yeah. Right? Really about looking for resources that provide multiple modalities of instruction and then multiple options for ways that students can engage with and express their learning is the primary. Exactly. I think we now have and realize that students with disabilities are more uh, prevalent than we realize. There are lots of learning, right? Lots of learning disabilities that were previously undiagnosed. But then you have physical disabilities. So we have to create curriculums that meet all those needs. And it's not meant to like complicate teachers' lives. But if the goal of a teacher is to teach and the children to learn, then yeah. teachers should want to have that because for them, it's more enriching if their whole class is responding. Yeah. It's designed to make students and therefore teachers successful. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite success story from your work with various organizations that educators might have a takeaway from. One of the things that I love is 
finding creative ways to solve the problem and letting, um, you know, for an educator, letting people know uh, or museums know when the kids are going on school trips ahead of time and sharing the curriculum. And I think that makes a really big difference um, because sometimes the teachers are not planning that part for kids with disabilities ahead of time and giving the school notice. People tend to know like where they're going every single year. They, they know what works into the curriculum. Let, the, let those sites know ahead of time, this is what you need. And if enough teachers are requesting the same access, the schools are fine. You know, the sites are finally going to um, add those that access. And so, and I think the change happens when people ask for it. So it's not that hard for change to happen. I was able to do it with the National Park Service. You know, that Gettysburg, when they did the renovation, they changed it. They built in the access. But I wondered how many school trips from the Pennsylvania area had gone to Gettysburg with kids with hearing loss. And they had those students had no idea what was going on in the map. So I worked for a nonprofit, a, a big Center for the Arts and Humanities here in Denver. And that was one of the standard questions we asked any school group making a reservation for children's theater or workshops or our museums is do you have students who have learning needs or who have access needs so that we knew and could be prepared for that? And that should be a standard question that any organization is asking, but they're not. So if they don't ask, then the teacher needs to be prepared to be the one that asks and make sure that there are accommodations in place is what I hear you saying. Yes, but part of the problem is that sometimes the teachers don't want to ask because their fear is if the site does not have it, then does that mean they can't go? Hmm. And so that's part of the problem of why they don't ask because they're afraid the answer will be no. And now they have to cancel the trip for everyone else. So here's a perfect example. The new Paralympic Museum that opened in, in Colorado, they forgot to add induction loops for the videos. They relied on Paralympians for access information. Now, what's fascinating is Paralympians do not have hearing loss. People with hearing as their primary disability, they may have a hearing loss in addition to another disability, but People with hearing loss, athletes with hearing loss, participate in the regular Olympics. Right. And so they didn't realize that. And so the access is not, in my opinion, effective communication, right? So they have captions on the videos, but there's no way to bring the sound to a person's hearing aid or cochlear implant. Now, think about a student who maybe skill set of reading is not strong enough yet to read captions, little kids, or even still... Even if you do, you want to be able to hear the sound because, for example, imagine how reading this transcript would sound compared to listening to my voice. You can hear that I'm a passionate speaker, right? You can hear the passion in my voice. If you're just reading it, it's flat. It's not the same. That's why we all don't read things. We listen because we can. And if you, so imagine now not being able to hear the whir of the, let's say, the ice skate. Or, you know, or the bobsled, you can't hear that sound as the bobsled's going down. You, you want to be able to hear the sound mm-hmm. and it, you can't. And so now let's say a teacher's going to that museum 
and they write and that's not there. Does the teacher now feel burdened that they cannot go to the museum? And so it really is important for museums to fix the access. I would love to hear how much of a lift is it for an organization, a museum, any kind of cultural venue to put that in place? It really isn't because as you mentioned, it's 30 years since Americans with Disabilities Act. What happens at a lot of these museums is hearing access is not part of building codes. It comes under something called programmatic access. When the ADA was enacted, the primary people who were working on it were people who use wheelchair. If you watch the movie Crip Camp, it really sheds a lot of light. And so what happens is when you have the ADA, the way it works is if you take a building and you turn it upside down and you shake it, whatever stays in the building when you shake it is called a fixture. And this is a, like a very rough thing. Everything that falls out is called, pro, you know, is part of program access. Okay. So yeah. the U.S. Access Board oversees the fixtures and the Department of Justice oversees the programmatic access. Anytime you have two government agencies overseeing one law, that's all the problems occur in the, cre- in the crevices between the two agencies. Plus, then you have other agencies for like Department of Transportation, um, FAA, you know, so there are lots of agencies and there are lots of crevices. But the problem is you can open a museum without programmatic access, but you can't without a certificate of occupancy, which is the built-in access. And so the videos fall under that programmatic access. And so when budgets are getting tight, as if you've ever done renovation in your home, right, there's always, you're always over budget. And so when you're looking to slash expenses, you're going to slash the expenses that you can, where you can open your doors and deal with it later. And that's the programmatic access. So hearing access gets slashed a lot of times at the end and they never add it back. And because there is no oversight, there is no sheriff going around and checking to make sure it's there. That's why it's not there. I'm hoping within the next year, we're going to have some decisions on this that are going to make this a little easier. Yeah. There's some change happening right now. In the new appropriations um, budget, there's um, a paragraph about the Smithsonian adding in the access. Mm -hmm. And it's taken me well over, I think, since 2005 to get that paragraph in there. Well, your daughter is certainly lucky to have had you as her advocate and all of the other people who are benefiting as a result of your advocacy um, are worldwide. Uh, It's amazing the impact that you've had. And for our teachers listening specifically, you wrote an article called 10 Misconceptions Teachers Should Know About Children Who Are Hard of Hearing that has very practical pragmatic tips for those teachers whose school or district are not designating the funding to give them the technology or the training that would be helpful to them in making sure that these students have access. You have offered some very practical tips that they can put in place in their classroom. And so, and you mentioned a couple of those earlier, but if you had to pick kind of your top three for teachers, what would those be? Making sure every single movie and film is captioned. It's captioned. That is just a given. 
Um, thinking that children with hearing loss can learn other languages, that's inaccurate. And realizing that um, where you place children in a classroom setting in terms of their seating to make sure they could see lips, making sure maybe changing if there's a child, a student with a hearing loss, maybe changing the layout of the classroom, right? The front to back, the traditional rows may not work versus a circle so that the student with hearing loss can see everyone's lips. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us today. I know that um, educators listening are going to take away so much valuable information and so many great tips. And if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? They can find me for advocacy at JaniceLintz.com, for ConsultingHearingAccess.com, and um, of course on LinkedIn under Janice Lintz. And thank you so much for having me. You'll find all of those links to contact Janice Lintz in the episode notes, along with her article, 10 Misconceptions Teachers Should Know About Children Who Are Hard of Hearing, and a number of other publications about her and her work. You'll also find today's sponsor, Noticing, providing interactive music lessons to aid with engagement, comprehension, and recall. It's a turnkey solution for schools who are struggling to provide music instruction or who are wanting to integrate music into general ed classrooms. Jack Shelby, Ensemble Director at the Horizon High School in Oregon said, noticing is a great way to get students working on finer singing skills when we aren't in the classroom together. There's a lot to love about it. And as one of the ninth grade students put it, it is fun to understand the music. And after level one, you already sang a real song and that makes you motivated. You can learn more about noticing at EdCuration. Simply click the connect to vendor button to learn about the half price offer using the code EdCuration, as well as their pilot project. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found the information helpful, please rate us, give us a quick review, leave us a comment, and please share us with your colleagues. This helps us to continue to bring great content and knowledgeable guests to you each week on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning. Music